Two and a Half Admins, episode 156. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some news and a couple of stories that go together. Zoom, the company, is requiring that their workers return to the office at least a few days a week. And also, I saw Blue Jeans, which was a Zoom competitor or a Google Meet competitor that Verizon bought for an awful lot of money shut down recently. And that made me think, have we just come out of the back of this thing? Is work from home just dead? No. No. There are certainly a lot of high corporate muckety-mucks who desperately want it to be dead. I should be honest, there, there are plenty of small business owners who want it dead also. But that's reactionary nonsense. What you're really seeing out of the Zoom thing, it's important to note, Zoom is not saying, okay, screw remote work, haul everybody back into the office all the time. They're saying, we need a little bit more in office. It's, it's moving the slider a little bit. It's not flipping a switch. Yeah, like they're specifically saying, if you live close enough to an office, although 50 miles is not that close to an office, but then you have to be in the office two days a week, which is still plenty hybrid for work from home. It is ironic that the company that enabled so many people to work more from home is requiring people to come back to the office. But, you know, it's not that abnormal either. Well, yeah, that's the big headline here is Zoom, the company whose whole business model depends on remote work is now saying that remote work isn't good enough for them. Well, there's a lot of different factors that come into it. Part of it is they have a long lease on some office space and they're like, we got to use it or we look really bad. Yeah, that is definitely a problem. You know, when when a company has made like 20-year plans that involve buying or leasing enough office space to house all of their employees full-time and then they discover, oh, it turns out we need like 10% of this, you know, because we have a largely remote or, you know, hybridized or whatever, and we literally just don't need this much facility. Those operational costs can be immense. And it especially starts getting panicky for companies that have already bitten off long-term plans like that, that it's hard to get out of prior to the pandemic. If they have any competitors that, you know, were not stuck in that far ahead and have been able to actually downsize and get rid of those massive operational costs, that starts to look kind of scary and you start looking for ways out of that. Yeah, I've also seen a, a lot of interesting things about not so much Zoom, but other companies in certain industries where because of remote work, they have better compliance and they're wanting to avoid that. <laughs> Basically, anything done remotely gets logged as messages get sent or whatever, and those have to be stored. But meetings people have in person don't get recorded and don't have to get stored. <laughs> and they're like, turns out we do a lot better when we, you know, people aren't worried about getting recorded. Or if our competitor is having meetings in person that aren't being recorded and they're deciding to do something and we're all re working remotely and everything we do is recorded and so we're being on our best behavior, suddenly it means that we're not keeping up with our competitor as much. That's certainly something to think about. I would like to push back some on the idea that it's just like it, it's it's an unvarnished good to be able to have, you know, these unrecorded meetings and therefore be able to talk about and say and do things that you could not if that was out in the open. That can be a short term gain. It can also be a long term, very much not gain, because as we've seen a lot over the last few years, whether they're in person or not, like I don't remember a whole lot of remote work in the White House, but boy, howdy, we've seen an awful lot of text messages, haven't we? Yeah, well, in particular, uh, some of the 
things they found were that remote work led to less fraud. And they found that through research that a lot of that led to if a bunch of people at work see somebody doing something bad and getting away with it, they think that they can get away with it as well. And it causes more bad things to happen than when people are left to their own devices, they're more likely to follow the rules. And they actually tied this into some policing stuff where they saw one police officer getting too many excessive force complaints or whatever. So they move him to a different department so they won't affect his peers. But it turned out that just spread the problem to more people. Yeah. Hmm. That was an interesting analogy that you made there, Alan, because I, I was I was reaching for a metaphor. Like I knew it was in my head, but I couldn't quite get it in place. But you just nailed it. What this is really reminding me of, this discussion about, you know, oh, well, if we can have these in-person meetings, like it doesn't have to all be recorded. What it was reminding me of is cops hating body and dash cameras. Yeah, and my original point was mostly from the financial sector. If you're dealing with mergers and acquisitions and there's, you know, some little bit of leeway you want to have with the compliance rules, you know, people might do that in person, but they're not going to do that in writing or in anything that's recorded. But yeah, I'm definitely with Jim that it's not an unvarnished good at all, but it can be why businesses decide they want to have more in person. But being fully remote is difficult as well. You know, speaking as someone who runs a fully remote company, there is a lot of value in getting people together and having meetings. But oftentimes, you know, you can get away with that by just having meetups like three or four times a year and getting most of the value out of that versus trying to make people come into an office multiple days a week. Because your company wasn't fully remote before COVID, right? That was my previous company. Ah, right. So this company was fully remote then. This one was always fully remote. Uh, There are no two people in the same city that work for us, which is part of the reason. uh, But it allows us to hire people wherever they happen to be instead of being restricted to people that could make it into our office. Yeah, which surely broadens the talent pool enormously. Yes. And it's been very good for us. Uh, But it does mean, you know, you have to make allowances for that and deal with that. You know, a lot of people find that while it's not necessarily a good thing that a very large portion of their social network is made up of the people they spend all their time with at work. And when they suddenly shift to remote work, they don't have nearly the level of social interactions they they were used to. Mm. And so people that were used to an office and then start working for a fully remote company often end up being very isolated because they're not talking to very many other people. And they have to make lifestyle changes to make sure they get out there and actually talk to other people and, and have a social network outside of work. Especially with remote work when you got spread across time zones, it's like, yeah, most of the time... I'm awake, half the other team is asleep. Mm. And so, you know, it makes it hard to even get that amount of social interaction out of work. You've definitely got a point about the social interaction. But again, I want to push back a little bit and point out that's a problem for roughly half of people. And it's a win for roughly half of people. (laughs) And extroverts, fuck you. Now you get to feel what it's like to be on the wrong side of that. (laughs) Us introverts were on the wrong side of that for in some cases, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Now you get to feel what that was like for us. You no longer have the degree of social interaction during the day that you would prefer, and you don't like it. We didn't either. (laughs) There's also probably something to be said about it's not the worst thing to inject a little bit more separation between your work life and your social life. Mm -hmm. Again, as the the oldest fart in the room, I grew up and, and began my working life in an era when it was completely normal to date people at the office. Mm. By the early 1990s, people were starting to 
say, oh, well, this is an ethical problem. You just shouldn't do it. And, you know, start, you know, saying things like don't, you know, crap in your mess kit, you know, poop where you eat, whatever, which is a weird thing to say about your love life. But anyway, (laughs) they were just starting to say, well, maybe this is a bad idea, but that's because before then it was absolutely normal. And one of the reasons that it became possible to denormalize this whole just like, you know, treating your coworkers as a dating pool thing is because, honestly, of the rise of internet dating, which is almost like the remote work of your love life, you know? Like, you have a chance now to interact with a much broader pool. You also have a chance to, you know, not get choked in your own exhaust gases, you know? I mean, one of the big reasons that no matter how great a person you are or how ethical you try to be, it kind of sucks to, you know, date people at work as a normal practice is you still have to work with them if and when you break up. And that can be difficult and that can be really unpleasant. And that's why splitting those things off is a good idea. For the same reason, it's maybe not the worst thing to not rely on coworkers as like your only source of friends and social interaction. And again, this was a worse problem for us introverts than it was for the extroverts. You know, the extroverts largely are like hanging out all day at work with their work friends and then hitting the bar with some of their work friends and, you know, a whole bunch of other people who are not at work and making more friends or whatever. Meanwhile, the introverts are just kind of stuck with whoever they work with and, and all the issues that, you know, apply there. Really, the the remote work thing and they're not just, you know, bathing in other humanity all day long. It, it just, it really kind of ups the incentive and, you know, the, the best practice of like, look, I need to put some actual work into having a life outside work because life at work definitely will not be enough to just kind of get me through. Yeah. And, you know, while, like we said, it's ironic that this is happening at Zoom, particularly in a survey Zoom did, they found uh, about half their employees preferred a hybrid model where there was some in the office time and some remote time. But I imagine if you're one of the people that lives 40 miles from the office, you would really prefer less hybrid. (laughs) Again, in my younger days, it was not that uncommon for me to have to commute, uh, usually not like 50, but 35 miles was pretty common for me for a daily commute. It's maybe not great, but I mean, when you're only talking about a couple days a week, even 50 miles is not that bad. Because, I mean, it's not like we're talking about like 50 miles through downtown traffic. If you got to drive 50 miles... Most of that is going to be interstate driving and probably a fairly straight shot. Where I live, being about an hour from Toronto, there's a big contingent of people that drive that probably 50 plus kilometer trip every single day of the week. Yeah, and two days a week starts looking pretty good, to be honest. And you know, those two days a week, odds are pretty good if you're 50 miles away from, you know, a really big area like Toronto there's probably some things you wouldn't mind doing in the big city roughly a day or two a week. And well, you're already there now. So, I mean, you can kind of double up, you know, on that commute. So we haven't really talked about blue jeans yet. And I don't know how much there is to say about it. I did get a chuckle out of nine to five Google describing it as the platform that you've probably never heard of. If you haven't ever heard of it, that probably means that you have never worked at a news outlet like nine to five Google or Ars Technica or The Verge or wherever. Because uh, that was the first time I heard of it when several large corporations would want to have like, you know, bigger press conferences on blue jeans. I never really saw the appeal, but apparently the platform scales better to particularly large gatherings. That was at least that was the reasoning I was given for why I had to find and download yet another thing. Uh, That would explain why some of the conferences 
used it that I'd heard of that because that's the only time I've ever heard it used is with certain conferences. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and it had some really compelling features for conferences, such as instead of doing screen sharing, you could upload the slides as PDF and it would synchronize switching to the next page of the PDF across all the viewers. So they would get full fidelity with just downloading the PDF rather than streaming the PDF at 1080p for an hour. Uh, and use a lot, be a lot more bandwidth friendly for people that were constrained. I never knew about that feature, but yeah, that does sound like that'd save a lot of bandwidth if you're streaming to several hundred or a few thousand people. A lot of times it was also being used as part of uh, education software. And so, especially in the case where, you know, people might not have very good internet, being able to just synchronize switching pages of a presentation instead of screen sharing could make a big difference there. My three kids just started at their three various schools in the last couple of weeks. And please, please don't make me talk about educational software right now. Yes. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. I think we have to talk about SanDisk Extreme SSDs. There were reports a couple of months ago, I think, of people losing data on these. These are the NVMe-based USB SSDs. And SanDisk or WD, who owns them, said that it was a firmware issue and they released a firmware update. Well, that hasn't worked and people are still losing data on them and they are still selling them, often discounted quite heavily on Amazon. I wonder why. Mm, indeed. <laughs> this is turning into a bit of a mini scandal, I would say. I'm just happy that it is turning into a mini scandal because it reminds me very much of the you know crucial SSDs many years ago. I had a local hardware vendor talk me into deploying a whole bunch of those, and uh, I ended up with about 50 of them out in the field. All 50 were dead within 18 months due to firmware issues. And nobody ever seemed to give two shits about that. So I am not surprised that some model of SSD is just conking out and losing people's data all over the place right now. I'm just frankly kind of happy that people actually care enough, you know, to make us think about it. Yeah, I think one of the interesting ones is the, the link from The Verge. They're saying that, you know, they had one that had this problem and they warrantied it. And Western Digital sent the replacement and said, this one will work. And then it had the same problem. It's not clear if the replacement they sent actually had the newer firmware or not. Again, you know, it's it shades of Crucial because like when the Crucial debacle, they came up with firmware updates and swore up and, oh, just update the firmware and it'll be fine. And in some cases, like you could get a bricked Crucial MX SSD with the bad firmware. You could get it back up and running again with the new firmware. Neither doing that nor applying the new firmware before you ever saw a problem 
had much impact on that eventual like 18 month death sentence that I saw on everyone that I deployed. So again, this is all sounding very familiar and I'm just happy for the stink. Yeah, this particular problem seems to be something with the firmware where the device will fall off the bus and when it reconnects, it forgot that it had any data or how it was formatted or whatever. And even attempting to format it seems to not get it to work again. Sounds a little bit like maybe it's somehow losing the key it used to to encrypt all the data or just the metadata itself about which sectors actually map to which physical flash locations because I don't think these actually try to claim any kind of encryption. But if you lose that metadata, that just the flash translation layer, then yeah, what you have is a bunch of flash and you don't know what's what. And so the sectors that were at the beginning of the drive that had the partition table aren't there anymore. And you don't have any relationship between where the cells in the flash are and where your actual data is. We have to point out who owns SanDisk these days. It's Western Digital. And... That company has not managed to get itself much in the way of good press for many, many years now for good reason. Uh, That was the company that we saw with the absolute worst of the scandal with SMR disks being submarined into consumer lineups and NAS lineups several years ago. It's the company with the nasty warnings on NAS drives just because they were a few years old that was making people think those drives were failing. So... It's hard to cut them much slack at this point because it just seems like another day in the Western digital calendar. Yeah, I think my closing thought, especially when I just read the headline and hadn't actually dug into the stories to know what the problem was, is don't trust any disk ever. Yes. Doesn't matter how good the brand is. Doesn't matter how good the reputation is. It doesn't matter how expensive it was or how enterprisey it is. Disks will die. Disks will lose data. In lots and lots of different ways, you're going to need more than one disk. Yes. Now, in this case, if you had mirrors of these, they might have both died at the same time and you'd still be screwed. Well, that's because what aren't mirrors, Alan? Say it along with me. Mirrors aren't Are not a backup. Backups. Well, yeah. And The Verge lost three terabytes of video because they put it only on this one disk. Surely, if it was that important, they should have put it on one sand disk and then one a different brand. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here because I don't know what that workflow looked like. But having worked in the same industry, there's very frequently not really great like sysadmin practices on the leading edge of like news content generation. That's not usually who you have writing those articles, you know, even at technical outlets. It very much reeks to me of just like, oh, we'll just we'll record to that and that's fine and that's where it lives. Whereas, you know, the proper workflow would have been if you can't record to a proper server infrastructure that already does have redundancy and automated backup and you don't need to worry about it and you need to record onto that portable device. Okay, all right, you record to it. But the first thing you do after that is you make a copy of that data because it's expensive in time and money to have to reshoot all of that. Yeah. Any photographer that takes digital photos, the first thing they do is get them off the SD card onto something that's going to get backed up. What disappoints me the most about this is that it's SanDisk, a brand that I have always had really good experiences with. Well, first thing I'll say is SanDisk stopped being SanDisk when they got bought by Western Digital. Yep. Like Western Digital paid to be able to shit all over that name. HGST is no longer HGSD. SanDisk is no longer SanDisk. They're... Western Digital. And like I said before, that company has been determinedly earning itself a reputation for quite a few years now. 
Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And now that we're part of the Late Night Linux family, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of just this show for $5 a month or all the Late Night Linux family shows for $10 a month. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Marcek has done. Marcek writes, I'm considering building a home server based on ZFS that will double as a media server. ECC RAM is supported in modern consumer CPUs, most Ryzen's and 12th, 13th gen Intel's, but matching Intel motherboards are extremely expensive and only more powerful AMDs with GPUs have ECC. I'm targeting a RAID Z2 pool of six disks with PCIe extension. I've struggled to find comprehensive and up-to-date resources on hardware for home usage. Do you have any tips for a reasonable home setup without breaking the bank? Okay, so there's one misconception here I want to address right off the bat. The idea that only Ryzen's with GPUs support ECC is incorrect. All of the Ryzen's I'm aware of since the Ryzen 2000 series at least have supported ECC RAM. I did just double check and that includes the new you know, Ryzen 7000 series. They also all support ECC. That's one of the things I love about AMD. They don't really gate away features the way Intel does to create you know, a monstrous list of SKUs and try to nickel and dime everybody. The issue on the AMD side is, well, it's largely the same as it is now on the Intel side. It's finding the motherboard that supports a consumer processor with ECC RAM. That's getting more possible to do than it used to. There was a time when there would generally be a handful, like five or six different motherboards that would support a Ryzen with ECC RAM, but it was always, you know, under the table support. It was not explicit. And then ASRock came out with the uh, ASRock rack line that explicitly supported ECC with Ryzen's, which is why I own several of those motherboards. I'm less familiar with the trials and travails of finding Intel motherboards that support core processors rather than Xeons with ECC, but it does not surprise me that they tend to be very expensive. Even over on the AMD side, that ASRock rack I talked about, I've bought several of. Yeah, it was like a $300, $350 motherboard competing with like $150 motherboards that supposedly, you know, many reports came in that ECC was working, but I just took the stance that without explicit, no kidding, it says right on the box, yes, this is a supported configuration. I didn't want it. But you don't actually need ECC RAM for ZFS, right? Definitely not required. It's a great thing to have. So, you know, if you can find one of these motherboards that supports it, then definitely do that. But if it's going to be hundreds of dollars extra, you might rather spend that money on more storage instead. I want to be extra clear here. ECC RAM is not a nice thing to have with ZFS. ECC RAM is a nice thing to have with your computer, whether you're running ZFS or not. Whether you're using the ZFS file system or not has absolutely no impact on whether you would benefit from ECC. ECC is nice because, you know, bit flips from Cosmic Ray impacts absolutely do happen. Issues with, uh, you know, like a stuck bit in a stick of RAM absolutely do happen. There are a number of issues that crop up that an ECC RAM can insulate you from, and without the ECC RAM, instead you end up with corrupt data, randomly rebooting computer, you know, what have you. When those problems are really bad, you have a very unstable system that crashes all the time. Most people most technical people will recognize that. I think fewer technical people realize that, you know, when you're used to the idea that, yeah, well, you know, my computer just kind of locks up 
once in a blue moon, like uh, once a year or so. Like, I don't really know why, but it'll lock up or just randomly reboot. Well, it's certainly not the only possible reason for it, but the odds are quite good that what you just had was an unfortunate interaction that resulted in a bit flip in RAM in an area of RAM where you noticed it. Because that's the other thing. Bit flips actually happen a lot more frequently than you realize, but the odds are usually pretty good it'll happen in an area of RAM that you're not going to depend on. Either that area of RAM is free, or it's being used for disk cache, and you don't actually use that cache before it expires and gets reloaded, or you know any of a million other reasons you can have things in RAM that it turns out you'll never notice if a bit got flipped in it. But sometimes it's in a critical area, and you do notice. If you're lucky, you notice it right then when your computer reboots. If you're not lucky, you'd notice it a whole lot later when you start finding corrupt data on disk and it really doesn't have anything to do with the file system. It was corrupted in memory, but then you saved it to disk and you didn't notice. ECC saves you from all those things. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me at jorrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude on x.com. See you next week.